So hello, everybody, and welcome to another crowdsourcing sustainability webinar. I'm your host, Ryan Hagen, and just want to thank you for being here today. I appreciate you and the work you're doing, uh, or we'll start doing soon. This is super important stuff. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Adrian Grieve and Michael Boswell. Adrian and Michael are professors of city and regional planning at California Polytechnic State University and co-authors of the book, Climate Action Planning, a guide to creating low carbon resilient communities. This book is intended to be a practical guide. This is in their words, helping readers navigate the principal actions and critical considerations for managing a climate action planning process in their communities. Michael and Adrian have done climate action work internationally with the United Nations and the World Bank. They've also worked on dozens of climate action plans professionally in California, and they've researched extensively the state of climate action planning in the U.S., as well as published studies based on that research. Uh, and I have not finished the book, but I have started it. It is very good. Um, and I will share that link shortly, just so I don't forget in case anyone's interested in checking it out. Uh, so Michael and Adrian, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Thank you. My pleasure. So I'd love to start, uh, like we usually do here, just by hearing your climate stories. So, you know, if you could keep it to just like two or three minutes, because I've got a lot of questions. I'm sure people all over this have a lot of questions. Um, keep it short-ish if possible. And let's start with Adrian. So Adrian, when did you start caring about climate and why? Ah, uh, well, a little bit of background. Like I'm originally from Seattle. I did my undergrad work in upstate New York, um, but was always kind of an outdoorsy environmental enthusiast. Um, and I read Al Gore's book, like my freshman or sophomore year and couldn't believe the guy who wrote that book got elected as vice president. Um, but I always had kind of interest in sustainability and environmental good. I studied engineering for my undergrad and my master's and went and worked as a hydrologist at the USGS. Um, and part of that job was to explain our science to city councils and community groups. Um, and it's there that I realized, oh, planners use the science. They don't make it necessarily, but they get to, they're kind of where the rubber hits the road. And I actually went and did a PhD in planning then. Um, and then I got hired at Cal Poly to teach environmental planning. Um, in 2006 and cities were just starting to think about doing climate plans or doing something about climate change. And a city came to our department and asked, well, could you have a studio? And we run studios with the memorandum of understanding with cities to write staff drafts of plans. And a city came to us and said, hey, will you write us a climate plan? And this was, late 2000s, um, so it's what, 08, I think. Um, there weren't any rules at all, which was scary, but also freeing because you just got to do what you wanted. Um, and we wrote the climate plan for the city of Benicia, which is just south of Berkeley. Um, and a year later, I wrote another one for another city. 
And I basically haven't stopped doing climate work since, partly because it encapsulates everything else as well. Like you still have to do flooding and stormwater. You still have to do air quality and habitat and land use. So it, it's this really expansive umbrella where you really need to deal with climate if you want to address social justice, if you want to address land use. It's kind of a big umbrella. So I like the integrative interdisciplinarity of it. So I've, it's been since then in terms of kind of how I got there. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. It sounds like it's kept you on your toes for a while. Uh, Michael, how about you? When did you start caring about climate and why? Well, in the late, uh, in the late 90s, I was at Florida State University working on my PhD in urban and regional planning. And my dissertation was on the uh, restoration of the Florida Everglades and in particular, how sustainability and ecosystem management were key concepts and how we were thinking about this, which you know at the time and probably still is the largest ecosystem restoration effort on the planet. And, but it became increasingly obvious while I was doing this work that uh, sea level rise had the potential to compromise uh, all of the good planning that was being done on the Everglades restoration. So it was always sort of uh, something I was kind of keeping in track on, but my focus was largely on ecosystems and ecosystem restoration. Uh, probably I can really peg it to 2006 when um, I'd finished my dissertation, I joined the faculty at Cal Poly and in 2006, California passed uh, the Global Warming Solution Act. And really right around that time, 2006, 2007 is when we really saw the emergence of, of community level climate action planning, um, uh, partly due to work by ICLE, Local Governance for Sustainability and some progressive mayors and, and um, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger signing the AB 32 Act. So suddenly a lot of stuff was happening. Uh, in 2006, 2007. Um, I should mention our, our co-author, our third author on our book is Tammy Seal. She's a consulting planner. She works for PlaceWorks. Full disclosure, she's also my spouse. Um, and so she was increasingly getting asked uh, to do climate and environmental related work. So everything just sort of emerged and I, I sort of quickly shifted a lot of my work solely into looking at this new, at the time, new phenomenon of community level climate planning. Awesome. Yes, y'all are both really in on the ground floor and have seen how it's evolved over time, which is which is really cool. Um, just so everyone's kind of on the same page to start, could one of you please define what a climate action plan is? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, so uh, what we're talking about um, in the work that Adrian and I do is primarily looking at city or regional scale. Of course, as we know, you know, we need global action on climate change. We need national governments to take action. We all individually need to do our part to take action. So kind of our slice of our work is what are cities, counties, and regional entities doing uh, and a little bit, we look at state, particularly here in California. So uh, 
cities do lots of kinds of plans. They do land use planning and zoning and transportation planning and parks and recreation and so on and so forth. So we're interested in kind of this slice of the pie that we call climate action planning, and that's the term of art now. And these are strategic plans that um, communities prepare to try to do two things, figure out how they can reduce their greenhouse gas emissions or their carbon emissions. So they're not causing as much of a problem in terms of contributing to uh, global climate change. Um, and secondly, uh, and, and increasingly, uh, these plans are looking at how the community can deal with the impacts of climate change. So it's kind of both sides of the equation. What can the city do to reduce its emissions, to, to help uh, mitigate or, or stop uh, global warming, but also recognizing that a lot of global warming is already here and baked in and the climate is changing and it's impacting these communities, what can they do to better adapt or become more resilient to these impacts? Um, so uh, that's the work that we're uh, doing, of course, as I think Adrian kind of mentioned, uh, these climate plans though kind of touch on almost every aspect um, of a city, land use, transportation, energy, public safety. Uh, and so even though they're focused on this issue of climate change, uh, they really have to be integrated well with all the things that cities and counties are doing. Awesome. Thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, y'all wrote a book on this. It was published in 2019, I believe. Uh, could you tell us why you decided to write that book and a little bit about the process of pulling it together? Like how many people did you talk to from how many different places? Um, and in what capacities these people were like involved in climate action planning uh, for? Because I know you know you can be a citizen, you can be part of a local nonprofit, local business, you can be in city government. I just love to hear why you decided to write this and that process of compiling all this information because it it seems like a huge undertaking. <laughs> I'll take this one. Um, and the 2019 edition is actually an update and substantial revision to our first book, which was in 2012. So seven years passed between the two. The first book was written because after I led studios in two of the classes to, for two cities, students were like, well, where are we going to do ours? And we're like, no, 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 we only do that if cities say they want us to come and no city has asked us to now. Um, so Mike and I decided to create a new class called Climate Action Planning and then went looking for textbooks and there wasn't one. It didn't exist. So the first book had 10 chapters and incidentally there's 10 weeks in the Cal Poly quarter. We basically turned our syllabus into a book. Um, and parallel with that, Mike and I were doing research where we had surveys out to get a national sample of all the climate plans in the US and things. Um, for research as well, we interviewed cities and so for other work, we were still, we were talking to city staff and reading a lot of climate plans. So Mike and I have read an unbelievably large number of climate plans across the US, all parts of the country. Um, and then, you know, six, seven years later, we're like, so much has changed. There's so much more guidance, so much more, well, legislatively in states and national and internationally. Um, 
a huge amount has changed from that first initial when everyone was first thinking about it, unless you were in like Portland, Oregon. Um, it was it wasn't new anymore. And so we talked to our publisher and we updated it. And so in a sense, I'd say 75 to 80% of the content was updated. Um, but the longer you stay in, you realize climate's kind of a small world. And we've been in it long enough that we know a lot of people. And so a lot of times it was asking our networks, who do you know that's doing really good stuff? Do you know anyone that's tried X? Um, and yes, we still did national surveys um, and still did a lot of research in that way. And we would find out about community groups that were collaborating with cities to do the work. By and large, because our focus is on municipal and county level climate planning um, at its core, there are lessons for other kind of jurisdictional sizes, but that's the primary focus. Most of the folks are gonna be affiliated with city level governance that we talk to, um, but it's a combination. And sometimes I, I have trouble. Mike was like, no, 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 that was for the research article, not for the book. And I was like, right. <laughs> but in my mind, they all start to blend together. Um, you know, Mike and I are both working on other projects that have outreach and information gathering as part of those, but they all start to inform each other at some level. So. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That I'll, uh, I'll add too that, um, uh, our, our third author, Tammy Seal, we're, we're, we don't have a hard official count, but we're pretty convinced she's, she's probably led the writing of more climate action plans than anybody in the country. She's probably over 50 now that she's worked on uh, in communities all over California. So she brings a tremendous amount of professional experience to our team. So, you know, Adrian and I are academics. We definitely didn't want our book to sort of live in the ivory tower. We wanted it to be a very practical guidebook. Uh, as Adrian mentioned, we were initially inspired to, you know, help our students and help educate our students. But when we first started doing the work, professional planners, you know, mayors were coming back from conferences and turning to their planning staff and say, hey, I want a climate action plan for our city. And professional planners are going, well, what is that? How do you write one of those? And so we were hearing a lot from the professional community too, that they were looking for better guidance um, or any guidance really on how to do this work. So we wrote it with that in mind too. So ideally, you know, we think of our audiences as, as, you know, anybody, whether it's a student or a professional planner or a citizen or an elected official who wants to learn about how to do climate planning in their community, you know, this is a great place to start. It's a it's obviously very complex and there's a lot to do. So our book cannot cover everything there is to know or to do. Uh, but it does try to sort of bring a lot of things together. And then it also points people, hey, if you want to know more about this or if you want to get in depth more here, here's a, a great resource that you can go to, which is also why we have to update it pretty regularly because as Adrian said, uh, things change very, very fast in this field. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm liking so far the uh, the chapter on case studies, something about mm -hmm. those real world examples. Um, do you have a sense of where we stand right now in the, the US? Because I know this is where you focus on climate action plans, like how many counties have them? How strong or weak are they by your measure? Like what's going well? What are the biggest 
areas of improvement. Can you can you give us kind of the high level where we're at right now? You can go. Mike. Yeah, I've got actually some some data I can share. Um, I'll start with I'll start a little bit more kind of local to us and and our work since. Um, Although Adrian and I work internationally and we've worked around the country on different kinds of projects, but you know most of our work is focused here in California. So Adrian and I maintain something called the California Climate Action Planning Database. Um, we've just we update it periodically, but it's an attempt to keep track of all California cities and counties and what they're doing in terms of climate action planning. So our our most recent update of that shows that um, about 260 of the 540-ish cities and counties in California have a climate action plan, and there's about 60 uh, more in progress. So, you know, potentially over half, just over half. Uh, it's hard to get a national count at the U.S. Early on, Adrian and I were tracking climate plans across the whole United States. Um, that was quite simple when there was about 150, which I think when we first completed our database, that's what it had. But it quickly sort of got out of our capacity to keep track because so many cities were doing things. Um, the U.S. climate, so there's a couple of data points I have. The U.S. Uh, uh, climate mayors organization, um, they have uh, pledges from about 470 mayors to do climate planning. And then uh, ICLE, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that provides a lot of organizational technical support to cities to do climate planning, and as a great resource, by the way, you should check them out. It's another good link to share. But ICLA USA um, estimates that somewhere around 600 U.S. cities um, have done climate plans. And then if you look globally, of course, it's even harder to count. But the Global uh, Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy um, have, uh, have a database that shows about 12,000 cities globally committed to doing this work. And about half of those actually having completed plans. So something on the order of like about 5,600. So uh, these are all rough estimates, but it does give you some uh, sense of, of scale. There's no, uh, in the US, there's no state that requires local governments to do climate action planning. California is, is about as close as it gets. It's, a, it's not a mandate, but it's a, there's a lot of incentives built into having one, which is why so many uh, cities and counties in California have them. That's super helpful. Do you, so if California is a little under 50% right now of counties with plans, what's your guess for the, the whole U.S. percentage-wise? Well, if, uh, if you, yeah, if you take Ickley's, it's going to be, um, it's going to be like maybe three or 4%. Wow. Okay. Lots of work think, to do. I think one thing to keep in mind is context matters. In places like California and New York and Washington State and the like, like there's a bunch of states that have state legislation. And if that's the context in which you're pursuing municipal action, it actually you don't have to justify too much. You can just say, well, state law says this. So if we localize that intent, this is what it would look like. In states that don't mention climate at all, really. And there are states out there um, that makes a local climate plan a lot more of justifying why you would development one. Um, and so it ends up like the context just matters a lot. And so I think that there, and what good climate planning 
is the most effective strategy will vary by place. Like different places have different energy needs, different heating needs, just based on climate. Um, and so it's really important that it, it's kind of fun or doubly kind of in terms of extra challenge. It's gonna be a little different everywhere. The strategies, yeah, there are some things like we all need to find a way to use fewer fossil fuels or none. What that means locally is actually gonna be really different based on local workforce, land use and the like. And so um, the, the best climate plan is actually gonna differ from place to place to place. So you can't really compare them necessarily. Um, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you start looking. That somewhat makes my next question a little bit harder, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and then we're going to dive into the, you know, the tips, the strategies for actually creating and implementing these. Um, what would you say are the top five places you can do either in the U.S. or in the world uh, that are maybe I'll, I'll say most ambitious or furthest along uh, in their climate action plan? Like, what do you have, who are your eyes on as the leaders in this right now? Mike, do you have Anything a- Do you want to start? It's you'll you're going to anticipate based on what I just said. There are individual cities that do particular things really well. Um, and so, for example, I mentioned Portland, Oregon. They were the first city in the U.S. What's really cool and impressive and something to emulate with Portland, A, they actually are really transparent about what we screwed up and what we didn't. So they have like lessons learned documentation, which is really cool. But each subsequent plan builds on and pushes past the last one. And so they take a review, look at what worked and what didn't, and then bolster what did work and alter what didn't. Um, the other thing I will mention that Portland does really well and is something every city on the planet should do is they partner with and delegate to community groups. They're like, well, the bike advocacy groups have a better network and are better at that than us, we're going to hand all of the outreach for mode share and bicycle infrastructure to them. Um, they combined with the builders union during the lockdown, like during the downturn, um, I think the 07 like finance downturn in the housing market when the building industry fell apart. City of Portland worked with the builders union to upgrade rental units. So it gave them work and it actually built a climate ally in the builders unit. So you find lessons. And so I think those two aspects of Portland, it doesn't even matter particular strategies, but I think the idea of they create alliances in the city to help them do, but it builds community support for and greater advocacy in some of the unusual places that you don't often see support for. Um, which is really cool, but you also, like, there's examples everywhere, and you can find really interesting, good plans. Um, I know Mike and I first read Dallas, Texas, which has a terrible reputation for not having, like, not believing in zoning, and we read it, and we're like, this is actually a pretty good plan. 
look at that. Um, and so there are lots of things like that where you realize like, oh, okay, they're doing, but what doing looks like is gonna be a little different everywhere. And so you can find lessons everywhere, but the kind of, there's my Portland lessons. Michael will have examples elsewhere. Yeah, to just add to that, and, and also, Ryan, to pick up kind of one thing I probably should have mentioned in, from the previous question is, you know, those numbers I was throwing out, those are for, for, for sort of identifiable climate plans. Uh, a lot of other communities are doing things that are in the right direction for addressing uh, climate mitigation or, you know, emissions reduction or climate adaptation. Um, it just might not be codified um, in a plan. I mean, uh, you know, Davis, California has a climate plan. I know they do, but even if they didn't, you know, they, they're, they've been a national leader on getting people on bicycles and for transportation, and which is, you know, a key, one of the key things that we need to do. So uh, that's always important to keep in mind that there's lots of great examples out there of what we ought to be doing to address climate change that aren't necessarily embedded in or tied directly to these kind of formal plan structures. So with that said, um, you know, if, if you kind of want uh, examples, it's good, of course, to keep context in mind because some examples apply well to your community and some won't. You know, typically, I'll give you kind of the typical examples that are, you know, given globally, which is places like Copenhagen or Oslo. You know, Copenhagen has a goal to be climate neutral in 2025, which is three years from now. Um, it's the most aggressive climate neutrality goal in the world. Uh, at least it was. I don't know if anybody's tried to meet them, but it's also one that um, uh, they they appear to have a very good shot at reaching. But they've got some already, you know, some things they've been doing for four decades that um, have given them a big head start, including how they produce energy in that area, and of course you know, their bicycle and, and transit and their ability to get people out of the, uh, out of a vehicle. So, uh, so they're, you know, they're often cited. They've been doing a lot of things for a long time. I think uh, an interesting aspect of Oslo is they are moving very quickly and they, they started kind of farther back uh, than Copenhagen. So they have more work to do. So they've, in some ways, they maybe are more aggressive on their policies. So I would, you know, so globally, those are two good examples, good examples, excuse me. Uh, in the US, yeah, Adrian gave Portland, which is a great example. Um, here in California, I would probably recommend, there's a lot of good ones here in California, frankly, uh, because we've been doing it a long time and it's really become pro highly professionalized here in California. So uh, if you're in California, I would suggest maybe just looking in your region first to see what's going on. but uh, two that I always point out in California, one is city of San Carlos, uh, both it's their climate, it's called their climate mitigation and adaptation plan, their CMAP. Um, I think it's both, it's both good technically, it's good on policy, it had robust public participation in it. Um, they've got a city hall well organized to deliver implement, uh, implementation, so a lot of great aspects to San Carlos's plan. The other one I'd look at is the city of Oakland. Oakland has their Oakland 2030 Equitable Climate Action Plan. And what I like about this plan is it really centers uh, environmental and climate justice um, as the way it builds uh, policy and planning 
and uh, you know really sort of stands out in, in that regard. So, so those are those are a few to look at. Um, we we talk about some others in our book. Uh, the ones in our book aren't necessarily in there because they're quote unquote the best plans, but they're in there because we we think there's something about them that they got right and that they figured out and that they addressed well. So uh, I'll just give you one example. Uh, the Miami-Dade uh, County, uh, the climate work going on down there, you know, what's really interesting about what's happening there is the regional effort, the Southeast Florida um, uh, climate initiative uh, that's down there, uh, the, excuse me, the uh, climate change compact, Southeast Florida climate change compact. Uh, it's just a, it's it's been a really interesting effort at a regional level to address climate change, particularly sea level rise, which of course is a a big issue for Florida. Yeah, I would I'm going to add one other thing. There's that not to be just West Coast biased. There are great examples in places you would necessarily expect. Kansas City, Missouri, is doing really interesting things um, and have been for a while. New York City often well depends if you're a fan or not they're doing really cool stuff both for resilience as well as greenhouse gases and you can go look you can also see really interesting efforts by college towns like Ithaca New York or Boulder Colorado um, Boulder has a carbon tax and they're using it to do things like retrofit rental units which makes sense in a college town which is a big, hard nut to crack for cities that have large renter populations because there's no incentive for landlords to upgrade their buildings if there's demand for rentals. And so you see cities, Ithaca has a really aggressive, they're electrifying all the buildings in town. That's really interesting. And so you find excellent examples in different places. Um, and. And there's it's it's inspiring to be on that side of it because if you spend too much time reading IPCC reports, it can be desperately um, <laughs> depressing. I will also say because there's the most frustrating and hardest to get your head around is there are two areas where the U.S. is stumbling, partly because some things in municipalities change very slowly, land use transportation when they're very tied together it's hard to transform transportation and mode share if your land use doesn't accommodate other modes it just you can't if it's not accommodating to walking or biking no one will um and so you have to do lots of things all at once and it takes a long time to change land use because you remember if you want to electrify buildings you got to electrify all the buildings that already exist, that's a really heavy lift. Who pays for it? And so I know a lot of people, including myself, if you spend enough time thinking about it, get frustrated with the pace of change. And I think the cities today that I look to as really interesting leaders are starting to find ways to crack the nut. That's why I brought up Boulder, is that they've always done some things really well, but they have explicitly found a way to fund upgrade and mandate upgrade of rental units, which is a really tough existing building upgrade challenge for cities to get their hands around. Um, and so you can find that, but remember land use 
takes a really long time. You don't build something to be torn down in 20 years. You build something with the envision that it'll be there for 80, 100 years. What if you build it in the wrong place for adaptation or build it in a manner that ends up being a really big greenhouse gas producer? And so undoing those choices gets harder. Yeah, Adrian, we should probably mention City of San Luis Obispo as well. <laughs> That's where we live. The City of San Luis Obispo has an excellent climate action plan. Um, I encourage folks to take a look at it and have done a really good job within City Hall of making the climate action plan a centerpiece of, of how the city thinks about budgeting, how the city thinks about all of the things that it does, again, rather than kind of siloing it. So, yeah. All right, so this is fantastic. I have one, if you could just do a one last quick one. What comes to mind for lower income countries, the global south, like who who do you have your eyes on over there? I, I Mike and I talked about this and I was like, Mike, you do the global north because you know that well, I'll do the global south. I can only speak about the countries in which I've worked, which is, you know, four or five. Um, what surprises me is the ability for the global South to leapfrog. Like they don't need to repeat the bad choices the developed world made. Like they don't need, a, if they don't have centralized utilities, great, you can start with disaggregated. And many are. Um, and there's things that we often don't, we're not fully aware of. You know, I don't know how many of you are aware that Ethiopia as a country, has a 100% renewable national grid. Did not know that. 100% hydro and wind. They're growing so quickly that upgrading the grid ends up with lots of shutdowns. So lots of buildings have diesel generators. So it's not perfect. But when I went and talked to their national government, I was like, well, do you think you'll ever backstop with fossil fuels? And I they were aghast, like in Ethiopia, no. I was like, okay, that's wonderful. They're also electrifying the really rural, think herders, dirt floors, grass roofs with microgrid, solar panel on a few of the huts with a battery in the middle. I met with the team that's slowly rolling out electrification for the rural areas. That kind of thing is really inspiring and interesting. Does it translate to the global north? Not really, but it makes a tremendous amount of sense there. Um, and so you find lessons like that. The other, I worked in Turkey and there's a city called Eskashir. We met with the mayor and walking out, we had Turkish consultants. And I finally said, is this the Turkish Jaime Lerner who is the mayor of Curitiba in Brazil, which is the first city to do bus rapid transit? They have amazing resilient stormwater work in Curitiba as well, even though they get all the press for bus rapid transit. Um, Eskashir, he decided he, they have pioneered local workforce. They have a bunch of canals, they're inland. They have a, ship, a small shipbuilding industry because the mayor was like, why would we import boats from the coast? Why don't we just build them here? So he started like this micro industrial kind of incubator. Um, it's really interesting and it's grown to a whole bunch of city needs. 
like the bridges over all the canals. They have beautiful iron artwork, but they started in ironworks, small for their city. And so you find really interesting lessons. So I came out of that city thinking, that's really cool. That's really kind of visionary kind of local workforce, jobs, housing, balance kind of work. Um, I was there doing staff training for infrastructure and climate. So climate informed infrastructure planning, um, because these are cities that would like to be eligible for green bonds, which we can talk about later. That's what I've been doing of late, but um, it's a big new exciting world for um, bond finance, which is how most cities build big things. So there's a lot of super cool stuff um, that y'all just mentioned. Uh, and hopefully this gives people some you know, perspective and also ideas for cities or towns to actually, you know, Google, look at their climate action plans, if they're similar to your community and you can take what, you know, looks good, what doesn't learn those lessons like Portland is sharing. Um, I'd love to now dive into what people should be focusing on uh, for their local community and, you know, cre either creating that climate action plan if it doesn't exist or implementing it if it already does exist, how do you improve it? Um, so could, could you please list the three to seven or so, just whatever comes to mind as the most important things for people to focus their time and energy on when it comes to creating and implementing these climate action plans? Mike gets to go. Sure, okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a bit of a, a focus as a citizen, right? So if you're just a citizen, and because Adrian and I work, sometimes we're working with elected officials and our, our message is for an elected official. Sometimes we're working with professional uh, municipal government employees and our message is for them. But it seems like the audience here, we have a lot of members of the public. And so let me start there. So, um, you know, one thing I always remind everybody is that for the most part, we know both how to solve the problem of carbon emissions and we know what to do to make ourselves more resilient in the future to the climate change that is and will continue to occur. Um, what we lack is political will. So that's always the first place to start, right, is that we have to build political will. So as citizens, our first responsibility um, is to talk to our elected officials, talk to our neighbors, um, and do our, our best uh, to try to make sure that uh, those people in charge and in power are doing the things that they need to do. And again, we've seen in the U.S., you know, we've, we've seen so many mayors really step up and be the, the leaders on, on climate change. And, and sometimes out of their own learning and education and inspiration, and sometimes because their community was demanding it. Uh, and asking for it. So that's that's always my first reminder is that that's that's a responsibility. You know, we're supposed to recycle and ride our bikes too, but you know, you should also be down at city hall demanding action on climate change. Um, the second thing I think is important to keep in mind uh, and to communicate when you can and to help build because we're all we all have different roles to play in our community. Um, is that we, one of the, our keys to success that we see 
with communities that have been successful in doing and implementing climate planning is building partnerships. So this is not just an initiative out of City Hall, right? It's not just, hi, we're government and we're here to help you and solve your problem. Uh, the power we've seen are communities that are, you see City Hall working cooperatively with um, environmental groups in the community, but also business groups and chambers of commerce um, and neighborhood groups and large employers in the community. So, uh, you know, one good example in our book we didn't mention earlier is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And one of the things they did really well was reaching out and getting formal working relationships and formal pledges from the largest employers um, in Pittsburgh. So it's really a public-private kind of partnership effort to address climate change in the city. So, so that's a, a second idea to keep in mind is, you know, what can you do to help uh, build partnerships? You know, if you own a business or you work with a nonprofit group or, um, you know, myself, um, I, I certainly, you know, I wear many hats, but one of them is I'm, I'm, an, I'm employee of a local university, right? And our local university and the students and the faculty, you know, we have a role to play as members of this community. And so part of my job is to, you know, help um, remind the university to work well with the city on these. So, so I'd say a, a second idea is um, partnerships. Um, um, a, a third idea in terms of um, getting started on, on climate action planning is, is probably around education. And, and this relates to the other two as well. Uh, but starting with educating yourself, which you're all doing um, here, uh, but also trying to find ways to extend that education into uh, the community. Um, in some community, you know, some communities are kind of ready to go in a sense, you know, everybody is sort of on board with the importance of climate change and how critical an issue is, but other communities might require uh, a bit more information and education. And so uh, we can do that formally through our schools, but we can do that informally through our own networks as well. So uh, building some capacity there. In fact, oftentimes when we see these kind of sort of cities begin to engage in these formal climate action planning processes that a lot of upfront work done is first to kind of inform and educate the community on what is what is climate change what are the issues what impacts are going to be felt locally what is our community's emissions profile look like what can we do why is it good to do it those sorts of things i'm going to build on what mike just shared as one theme, and this is true, at least for awareness, both as community members or as employees or associated in some way with City Hall, is that the plan is not the goal. Like, there's lots of places that have a beautiful plan that just collects dust. You've got to implement it. It has to be implemented, which is an ongoing thing. The emissions stay in the air for hundreds of years, meaning we're living with the emissions of the Industrial Revolution right now, meaning even if we all went carbon neutral, climate would still progress, albeit more slowly, which we are not yet stopping global emissions, but there's an element of you have to stay at it. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one and done. We got the plan. We're done. It's a implementing it takes ongoing engagement, whether that's continuing to do education, 
and outreach if your city staff, whether that's continuing to have the conversations, continuing go to uh, meetings, continuing to engage and try. Um, I think it's really important to get clear in your head that like, yeah, this is just a thing you do on an ongoing basis. Um, and I think a lot of times there's so much work and advocacy that goes into like getting the plan that we forget that the plan's just the starting line. It's so far from the finish line. So um, you've got to stay at it. And what that looks like will be different everywhere. Um, I will also say, find the messaging that works where you are. Different places will have different, different ways of messaging will help in other places. Um, I talked to folks in the Outer Banks of the Carolinas and they're like, yeah, we don't talk about climate, but you know what? Every person that walks in the door to the meeting, we ask them, how frequently is the road to your house flooded in the last year? How much did it flood 10 years ago? Do you wanna change that? What can we do about that? So we, like, we have entire meetings basically about climate and climate is never mentioned, but you know what? That's about their daily lived needs. And there's a huge amount of climate strategies that address and deal with short-term needs every community has, as well as long-term benefits, but you've got to do both. Um, and I think you can. It's just a matter of find the thing that grounds you where you are. Like lots of cities in California, you want to talk about climate, talk about heat and fire because it's a really big deal. That's also true in Colorado, Montana, parts of Washington state, Western Washington in particular. Fire's a big deal. Portland and Seattle had 115 degree heat. They don't have air conditioning by and large. Like that's problematic. So you can start your conversation there, like make it about what does climate look like here? What do I need to address? Greenhouse gas emissions, work on making sure those impacts are less severe or frequent through time. Adaptation is about, okay, how do we blunt the impact? But I would make sure that you ground the conversations for where you are, for context. And that's true in the US, that's true internationally. It's, it's kind of, you need to make sure you, you kind of ground the conversations where you are. And that's true for staff or community members. Yeah, we've seen we've seen communities kind of lead this effort based on the idea of uh, creating a green economy and green jobs. So it's it's very much, you know, uh, jobs and e economics forward as a reason to do climate planning. We've seen um, communities really focus around energy efficiency and energy security and the potential to lower um, energy costs for individual homeowners and businesses. Everybody likes to save money, so you know, it's it's a good point, you know, what what's going on in your community and what message might be most effective in getting people to begin to think about, um, not even think necessarily about climate change specifically, but taking action in ways that are supportive of, of climate change. There's a term for this called co-benefits, and we describe it in the book, but it's, it's the idea that most of the things that we want to do to reduce emissions and protect ourselves from the impacts of climate change also have lots of other good things that are outcomes for our community around cost savings, public health, 
um, reduce traffic congestion, those sorts of things. So sometimes leading with the co-benefits can be more effective, particularly if it's a community where you know, climate change might be seen uh, as more of a politically controversial idea. Yeah, Beth Sawin of the, the Multi-Solving Institute is, is a huge on co-benefits. Same, she calls it multi-solving as well, but I, I love that kind of bundling all the different ways that the community is going to benefit because then people can find whatever it is that they, you know, whatever resonates with them and it's a win-win for everyone. Um, we're going to take like five or seven more minutes and then we're going to do the Q and a, uh, I'm curious if someone is just starting in their city town, doesn't have a climate action plan yet. What are like, where do you start? What are the, what are the keys to doing this? I know you mentioned education and community partnerships, um, but like from square one, what, what should someone do? Well, so if we're, uh, I'll, I'll start it this way. So I'm going to shift perspectives a little bit. I'm going to shift more to the kind of city hall perspective that, uh, you know, the mayor, the council, the, the staff that work in the city, and they want to get started on doing climate planning. So in our book, we have uh, kind of a, a three-phase process. There's a bunch of steps under um, each phase. Um, but the first phase is getting started and it, 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 it tells, uh, let's say that local uh, government official who's been assigned the task, you know, the mayor's excited, been assigned the task of, all right, let's create our first climate action plan for our community. It talks about what they should do. Uh, many of those are similar things to what we just mentioned uh, from a citizen perspective, uh, but there's a number of other uh, particular things. Um, and one is, is one especially important for a staff person is ensuring that they have uh, the capacity uh, to do the work. So, um, you know, uh, doing a, a climate plan and doing it well uh, can take anywhere from a year to 18 months. Um, so that's, you know, is the time available? It's going to take certainly hundreds of staff hours. You know, is this, a, is this a task you've been given along with the 50 other job tasks you have in your normal day today? Or have you been given the explicit time to do it? There's a number of very technical aspects to doing a, a climate plan. I'll, I'll briefly mention these because uh, I think they're relevant for everybody. Uh, one, we recommend, uh, and it's generally considered best practice, that climate plans uh, begin with uh, two major analyses. One is an analysis of the community's current emissions profile, or uh, what we call a greenhouse gas emissions inventory. So for your city, you know, how much carbon and other greenhouse gases are you emitting from what sources? Um, this allows you to identify what's the particular problem in your community. And, and we do see a fair amount of variance across the U.S. in these emissions profiles. So, um, you know, in some communities these days, transportation is really the biggest source of emissions. So that's where you're going to probably maybe want to start. Others, it's going to be your energy, your particularly how your electricity is supplied. So, uh, so that emissions inventory, that's very technical work and requires training and support. So that staff member is going to have to figure out, you know, are they going to learn it themselves? Are they going to work with an organization like ICLE? Are they going to go out and hire a consultant? And how are they going to do it? Um, in some cases, they can come to universities. Uh, Adrian and I have had students uh, do these for communities. Um, and then the other piece of the puzzle is what's called a climate vulnerability assessment. 
Uh, and this is to take a look at, you know, what are we going to be exposed to and as climate change occurs, if we're on the coast, you know, probably sea level rise. If we're um, inland, probably issues around heat and, and change precipitation and drought and, and wildfire in California, big deal. So, you know, what is climate change going to do to us? What impacts, hazards, disasters uh, can we foresee currently and in our future? And again, that can be very technical work uh, to do that. And so you'll need the capacity and training. So that's really where um, uh, a local government professional has to begin is sort of those logistical and resource needs. And then I'll add one more, which is building an internal team because communities that have not had success in implementing their climate plans often have siloed climate planning you know, five levels down in city government, right? It's it's some person in some department in one agency who's been tasked this and literally other parts of the city don't even know that it's occurring. And so what we've seen is successful communities have built these internal, sometimes they call them green teams, but interdisciplinary teams. So, you know, somebody from transportation is there, somebody from public works is there, somebody from parks and recreation, somebody from uh, budget and finance, Somebody from the police department and the fire department are there, right? Every aspect of municipal government has a representative because everybody has a role to play. And then oftentimes that office, that person who's doing this work or that office that might be doing this work is ideally, you know, under a mayor or under a city manager and not siloed, you know, five levels down in city government. Um, that's what we've done in the city of San Luis Obispo. We've, we've done a very good job of what we call institutionalizing climate planning within the full aspect of municipal governance and, and not siloing it. So I would suggest for the local government professional, those are some of the keys to getting started. Awesome. Thank you. Um, couple more questions. I know I, there's just, there's, we need many more hours here. Um, what are the biggest problems or hurdles that you see folks running into and what advice do you have for overcoming or solving them? I'll start there. I, I feel as though um, I have kind of two answers. One is in the general municipal climate planning world, time is an issue. There are some things in cities that change very slowly. Think land use but we have to change them. The way, like the number and style of cars and whether you use them, but whether your city supports transit, bike, pedestrians and the like, you can make that shift. It takes a really long time and it takes even longer for kind of the emissions reduction bound up in those changes to show up. You know, Portland, Oregon's fun, they started building bike infrastructure 10, 15 years before they saw any shift in the mode share, partly because you can't just build a bunch of bike lanes. They've got to connect where you live to where you work or where the bus stop is, and it all has to be networked. So it's there's, there's things that take a really long time. Tied up in that, and it comes back to Mike's green team, we make choices and do things in cities that aren't explicitly climate that are gonna be there and will influence city operation for a long time. Think major roadways. 
that's going to influence where building happens. That's going to influence where schools are built. That's going to influence all this. What if you included climate change in your assessment of where and what for the road? Think of major decisions because once you make them, you've locked yourself in and you can't undo it. Um, and I think that's where it kind of gets hard because we've made choices in cities that we can look at and say, huh, wish we'd done that differently. It's so hard to undo it. Um, and so I think that's the challenge. And I think you find that whether you're in government or whether you're a community member, because there are things that get locked in. The real task, just as a starting point, is to make sure you don't get locked into new stuff that's going to last another hundred years. You've got to actually make informed, climate-informed choices now. Um, and then start thinking about how do we adaptively adjust the things that we're like, huh, probably not a great idea. Yeah, I think that is a super important point. Just looking at kind of every major decision, maybe every decision through a climate lens, because it really does touch, touch and everything. And think of it this way. If you're building something where your envisioned lifespan is 50 years, 80 years, you need to design it for what the climate scientists say the world will look like in 50 to 80 years. What's the precipitation? What's the temperature? So you need to actually, it goes way beyond long range planning. Um, which is often 20 to 30 years, if you think about long-range plans. But think life of project, if it's 80 years, what is the world going to look like in 2100? Is this still going to be outside the floodplain? Is the electronics in this building going to still be functional in the envisioned temperature range for 80 years from now? Um, and that's the kind of thinking that you're starting to slowly see, but it's a, it's a heavy lift, um, but it's a really important kind of mental framing that you need, whether you're a community member, whether you're in city hall. But I think time to me is kind of the longevity of our projecting forward and the pace of change um, that's, that I find frustrating and most challenging in kind of what I do every day. Yeah, okay. One final question for each of you, and then we're going to Q and A. Uh, do you? Is there? Well, I guess it's one of you can choose which thing to do. Either like feel free to share something that I should have asked you but didn't that you just want to kind of say to folks, um, or just any call to action you might have. Any final pieces of advice uh, to leave people with before we get into the Q and A stuff. And we'll start with Michael on this one. <laughs> um, one message uh, that I like to, and again, sort of based on the audience we have here, and and um, one message I like to get across, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I want to make this direct connection a little more direct. You know, there's a from an individual perspective, there's. Um, there's a lot of uh, climate guilt, I think, that's out there, you know, because, you know, we're supposed to eat less meat and we're all supposed to not drive our car and, and no flying and, you know, uh, recycle everything and no food waste. And right. So there's a lot of uh, focus on what we as individuals um, are supposed to do. And it can uh, generate a lot of climate guilt uh, when we can't live up to that ideal. And 
uh, I like to shift that thinking a little bit because uh, often cases, many of the things that we want to do um, aren't easy to do because of the way our society is structured. So you might decide tomorrow, you know what? Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start riding the bus more instead of, uh, you know, taking my car to work, for example. Well, you know, what if the bus stops a half mile away and the bus only comes once every hour? Well, that's not very practical. So, you know, here's you feeling some, maybe some guilt and wanting to do something, um, but your community, essentially this is prohibitive or extremely difficult to do. And so I like to remind everybody that we, what we wanna do is when we think about individual actions, we wanna link that uh, to demands for change in our community that allows us uh, to act. So yes, um, you should you know, ride your bike and walk and use transit more than you drive your car. But if that's difficult in your community, you also, in a, in a sense, in addition to sort of feeling you need to do that, um, you, know, you need to be going and demanding that you know, walking, better sidewalks and, and safer bike routes and more efficient transit be provided in your community. So we need to we need to tie. Uh, it's not all on us individually, and I think sometimes big institutions want to tell us it's about us. We're the problem, individuals, and we need to change. And that's partly true, um, but we also need our communities and the systems around us uh, to change. So we uh, tie our personal motivation to political action. Awesome, Adrian. Oh. I'll echo a little bit of what Mike said, because on the flip side, there's all like there's climate guilt. I would try to steer clear of climate shaming, partly because being like you found a way to not drive your car. Great. So you can't go shame everyone else, because in a sense, you often drive people away. Just recognize that you've got to make it easy in all the ways. Like there isn't, it's not just Americans love affair with the car. It just may mean that all the other things that allow you to not drive your car or not get an electric vehicle are hard. Like there might not be hours for the bus. There might not be good bike lanes. There might not be appropriate routes. The distances you need to cover might not be accommodated. There's a thousand reasons that go into each of those choices as one, and I also think that there's an element that can be overwhelming. We all know there's things you could do. Um, and there's Dr. Hayhoe, and I think many of you, there's a ton of resources that all of you can look up out there. Um, but she suggests pick two things a year to do. Um, partly because it can be manageable. Mike, I know has, done a lot of the things you would need to do to green your home. I think he has only one thing left. I'm working on it. I switched to an electric bike and don't drive my car, but you know what? I live in a town that's five miles across. That's easy. So like, yeah, I shouldn't drive my car. You can walk or bike everywhere, but it's like you make changes as you can try to inspire and have fun with it because it's a long process. Um, if you let yourself get buried in guilt and shame, like you should collaboratively with community, make it positive. It can be good. Like you're trying to find most of the things you're going to do for climate planning is generally something communities want to do anyway. Like there's very little of it that's like, it's a tremendous sacrifice. No, actually you can find ways to enjoy and savor all of it. Like biking's great. I even bike commuted in Seattle in the rain. You can find ways to enjoy it. 
um, it's just something to do, um, like, because it should be a kind of a community building exercise um, in a huge amount. And there's like, as Ryan said, like you could go on for hours. There's lots of things. I thought I would just mention a couple things that you, if you're looking for guidance, Mike and I both worked on the California Adaptation Planning Guide. This has a really user-friendly step-by-step guide on how to do a vulnerability assessment. That's a good resource. You can go look at USDN, which is the US, well, the Sustainability Directors Network. This is an amazing organization for cities doing really good things. They're an amazing resource for strategies. Um, the World Resource Institute um, has lots of reports and guidance. You can go look at C40, Rockefeller, 100 cities. There's a bunch of guidance, of course, the UN. Um, you can even read the Grist online magazine, which has a lot of information and dialogue. There's lots of podcasts that you can go listen to to learn more, to see if there's a solution for a particular problem in the place you are to do that. And I would do that because you can bring it to the intention, attention, attention of somebody who has the power to make that change or build community around a particular idea, and then you can do it. So um, with that, I will pass it back to Ryan. Awesome, thank you both. And we will list as many of those resources as we can in uh, show notes and, and upcoming uh, with the recording. Um, all right, Q&A time. There's one that got a couple people seconding it, and it's from Timothy Nolan. Uh, so Timothy wrote, one important way to mobilize political will is to make the economic benefit arguments. Is there a good source of evidence for the economic value proposition for communities in implementing actions? There's, I will add, and I'll let Mike add as well, because I know he has data on this as well, but there's, um, interesting things from even old government reports like federal u.s federal government reports about um how much like you the trade like the resilience dividend or the avoided losses is four to one or greater um meaning for every dollar invested now you save four dollars later of addressing impacts before they happen so this means climate impacts too if you take climate exacerbated hazards Think fire, flooding, extreme heat, drought, the like. If you plan for it now for what it will be in 20, 30, whatever years, it is so much cheaper. Um, that's by and large the work I've been doing internationally. And I can tell you financial officers that at cities who really don't care about climate often look at the report at the end and they're like, oh, that one's marginally more upfront, but it's much cheaper long-term and the operational costs are lower, do that one every time. So I often jo joke to the financial people on the team, like, can I have you in my back pocket always? Because you convince people that the greenhouse gas option operationally in terms of energy and operations and maintenance long-term, that tends to be much lower. And in terms of resilience, you don't have to re like, rebuild it. You may have to repair it for in some cases, 
if you simply locate it and design it in a way that's resilient. Um, and so there's really compelling ways to actually put it into budgetary terms. Um, and you're seeing cities increasingly. I'm now in negotiations, so I'm not gonna name the cities yet, um, with three cities in the US, East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast, to do climate-informed capital investment planning. And those cities are doing this purely because they wanna be eligible for green bonds, which have better rates. Um, so you are slowly seeing cities make the connection to fiscal concerns. Um, and there are, I can send it to Ryan. Um, there are, there is literature out there that explain this. Yeah, I'll just add a, um, a couple things there. Uh, some local governments have done this as part of their climate action planning. They've uh, made attempts to, at least in magnitude, uh, quantify the economic cost and or benefits of certain kinds of, of actions in their community. So you'll find that in some of the climate plans, that level of analysis. I know, for example, the Copenhagen uh, 2020, 2025 plan um, has quite a bit of detail about how it's an economic uh, win for the community to implement the things that they're looking at implementing, but for some fairly particular reasons. And then there has been some, uh, a fair amount of uh, uh, what I call more generic work, looking at kind of all the different things we can do to mitigate climate change and attaching whether those things ultimately produce some kind of economic surplus or whether they are simply just truly kind of cost or costs that are difficult to quantify any benefits for. And so uh, I can't think of the specific piece of research. I could maybe find it and send it to you, Ryan, but um, I always picture this chart and it sort of shows from in rank order, you know, here's the biggest economic return thing you could do to address climate change. It's usually like, usually has to do with something around energy efficiency, um, insulating homes and things of that nature, which have very quick returns. Using LED lighting has very, very fast returns on investment. So yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's quite a bit of work out there and communities that want to sort of really quantify that economic benefit um, can do it for, for many of the things that they want to do. Awesome. Yeah, if you could, uh, if you find that link, definitely send it my way, please. Um, then uh, oh, let me mention one other thing real quick. Uh, if you take a look at Lancaster, California and what they're doing, which is a whole interesting story I won't get into, but you know their, uh, their, their climate work is very much based on producing positive economic returns. In other words, they sort of very explicitly said, what can we do, especially in energy, but in some other areas that is good for the climate, but also produces jobs and positive economic return for the community. Awesome. Uh, just a quick note to folks, we're not gonna get to all the questions and I see people asking for links. I'm guessing we're not gonna be able to send all these during this call, but we are gonna do our best to get you all this information and answer as many questions as we can uh, in the follow-up if we don't get to them today. Um, the next question is about financials and Khalid and Aldis both are asking about financials. Um, what advice do you have about getting money to actually do this stuff or getting it allocated? And Aldisa is specifically asking about how do you divvy up 
the budget to spend on decarbonizing the various sectors? Like what's that strategy or decision process look like? So, um, yeah, money's a tough one. And let me, let me tackle this in two ways and I'll try to be a little more brief since we're doing Q and a, but, uh, so I, I'll probably under answer, under explain, uh, first is communities that have not been successful in implementing their plan. And this comes from some survey and interview work that Adrian and I did are communities that created a plan and then said, now we're going to go find some way to fund it. We don't know what that is. Uh, we're going to go ask the big nonprofit for to give us money, or maybe we'll apply for some state grants, but th those plans inevitably end up sitting on the shelf. So what we know is best practice now is that climate planning has to be integrated with city budgeting. Um, and we've, I, I think, I think one of the cities that a, a great one to look to, again, it's an international example though, is city of Oslo. Um, they actually call it now, I think they call it climate budgeting. Uh, as a kind of municipal philosophy that that their budgeting process, uh, climate change and, and climate change issues are integrated throughout. So that's a first place to start. If you really want to do this, you, you, you have to integrate with municipal budget. The second is, yeah, okay, so municipal budgets only go so far, you need additional funding. How do you get that funding? Um, there's no short answer there, uh, but there are nonprofits who will fund certain kinds of activities. Um, there are often state and national grant programs, but again, that's highly variable depending on where you are. There's a lot of stuff in California, but I'm sure there's less stuff other places. Um, but seeking the external funding. In terms of um, how you prioritize, that's going to be typically dictated uh, at, a, at a community scale, usually driven by two things. What are the big problems in your community in terms of you know, what are your biggest emission sources and what are your biggest climate impacts that you're going to face? You know, what are those? That kind of comes out of that analysis that we talked about earlier, but that analysis is sort of meaningless without the community values part of it as well. So, you know, what does the community say they care most about where they most want to see investment? Uh, so you have to bring kind of that data and analysis of what is the nature of the problem together with community values in this participation process we describe in our book. And that's how you generate your priority list of, you know, here's here's number one thing. And so we're gonna fund that first. Awesome. I think we have time for one last question. A uh, couple people are asking about it, but what are, what are good strategies to accelerate implementation once you have a plan and account for real results? I just typed in an answer and one thing Mike and I haven't talked about yet. And I'm kind of wondering how it is we miss talking about that because it's critical. Every measure in your climate plan needs an indicator so you know if it's working. Like there isn't a hundred years of evidence on these strategies. A lot of them are novel strategies. And some of our early research, Mike and I asked, is your climate plan new or is it just repackaging? Like we've been trying to get people to ride the bus for decades, but now it's a climate strategy. So we asked and the answers kind of universally in the first generation of climate plans were no a good 75% of this is brand new. Um, and so it's critical for progress is to know what's working so that if things are working, you can accelerate that. If things aren't working as envisioned, 
you can fix it. And so monitoring and having mandatory reporting on progress so that citizens know what's working, so city council knows what's working, is a great way to assure progress and assure um, appropriate and accelerating implementation because it takes political will in many cases to achieve some of what's identified in plans, but you've got to monitor how it's going and you've got to make that data public and transparent and communicated to the people holding the purse strings. You've got to. Um, and so there are cities, the city that springs to mind, I typed this in the chat, Chula Vista, made their planners report every six months on progress on the implementation of their climate plan. San Luis Obispo does do that as well, but you see cities all over the country that do have regular reporting on how well it's going. It's really hard to get and demonstrate progress of implementation if you don't have any mechanism for reporting. Yeah, I think that that is probably a very critical point seems easily overlooked as well. Um, we are at time. Uh, Michael and Adrian, do you have any final thoughts you wanna share with folks before we part ways? I just wanna thank everybody for um, attending. Um, I encourage you all to, you know, uh, I always tell people, think about something you could do maybe today <laughs> uh, to take a step forward on climate. Uh, on solving the climate crisis, think of something you could do in the next month and think of something you could do in the next year and sort of uh, make those ongoing commitments. I like that. Adrian? Uh, I'm gonna echo something I think I've already said is that this should be fun. I, I always tell, like I tell my students all the time, like climate activists or climate planners, you have to be an optimist. Because if you were a pessimist, you wouldn't try. You just say, we're screwed, I'm out. Um, but that means you have a positive outlook. You could have to believe that you can actually make the change. Is it, are we gonna get rid of climate change? No. Can we dampen? Can we make our lives good, maybe different? Can we meet some of our critical needs differently? Yeah, let's find a way to do it. It should be enjoyable. It shouldn't be a death march. Um, so find a way to enjoy doing what we all know we need to do in whatever venue capacity you can. And uh, and Ryan, one other positive note just to mention, Adrian inspired me to, we should have mentioned this earlier, is that we have seen a tremendous amount of success um, here in the state of California. We have been reducing emissions at the same time we're growing state GDP. So we've decoupled growth of the economy from the need to grow emissions, which is uh, something that's uh, you know not been the historic case. And we have examples across the U.S. hundreds of communities that have been able to reduce emissions um, even when they're still growing. So we know this. We know that there are solutions. We know they can work. We've seen examples of success. And so that's the other way to stay encouraged. Is uh, it's not just hopeful. We've, we've done it and we have lots of examples of how to do it. Yeah. Awesome. And well, keep in mind, you drop emissions, you also probably simultaneously made your air quality much better and a whole bunch of things about where you live better. Um, 
So there, it's not just a long range climate thing. It's also like, all right, you're going to do this. It's great for climate. You'll make a whole laundry list of things about your community better. Yeah, I think health is one of the the key things that my mind always goes to, um, which everyone should be able to to get around. Um, thank you both so much for coming on the show and all the important work you're doing. Uh, you know, helping to mitigate climate change and helping cities to adapt. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and thank you for everyone who tuned in today um, or is listening to this after. I'm just grateful grateful for everyone who is you know rolling up their sleeves and, and helping get this super important work done. So thank you to everybody. Um, all right. Take care, everybody. <laughs>